singing quartets. Nobody ever asks me anymore. <laughs> well, that's good stuff. Amen. I love quartet music. I love all the music. I just think it's great. Boy, the choir does such a great job and all the different groups. The girls did so good this morning. Well, they did just a bang up job. It was good. I don't mean bang up like messed it all up. I mean good. Okay. But anyway, they, they do. They do a great job. And again, last Sunday night, we had all the teenagers, uh, uh, you know, sharing and doing so many things. And boy, I'll tell you, all the groups and the music and the preach and everything just turned out so awfully well. We're blessed here at Community Baptist Temple. We're so blessed. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes tonight. Ecclesiastes, that's in the Old Testament, of course. And you get to the book of Proverbs and you look to the right just a little bit, you'll run into Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're going to start a new study. We're going to talk about the book of Ecclesiastes a little bit. I'm not going to do a uh, verse-to-verse uh, uh, you know, series or anything like that, but I do have just like a, kind of a message out of each of the chapters, that kind of thing. And so we're going to look at that and we're going to give some consideration to it. And basically the whole series um, is um, re- called uh, Life 
weighed in the balance. It's life weighed in the balance. There you go. You see it there? That guy's ready to jump. And, uh, <laughs> but hey, life weighed in the balance. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I tell you, it's, um, it's an important topic in the day and age in which we live. And we're going to see how practical the book of Ecclesiastes really is. So many times, you know, people think the Bible's antiquated, that it's, uh, it's outdated, that it's no longer practical. But that's not the case at all. The Bible's as practical and as usable as it's ever been. I mean, it makes sense today. And we're going to take a look at uh, this particular book over the next uh, weeks and Sunday evenings and see if we can't glean and grow from it. And I believe that indeed we will. So let's go ahead and begin reading in chapter 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about into the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to its circuits. And the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been... It is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are come with those that shall come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and uh, to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to a great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart hath hath great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. For in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now, as we read this, again, it paints a pretty bleak picture of life, does it not? I mean, the writer here is none other than Solomon, David's son. And uh, Solomon was a man who enjoyed the pleasures of life. Everything that life had to offer, Solomon partook in. He held the most prestigious position in the world at the time. It's hard to believe at this point in history, but in those days, Israel was at the pinnacle of their power, and he, being the king of Israel, was at the highest position possible. He was healthy, he was wealthy, and he was wise. Who better to address the issue in this book than Solomon? The theme of the book 
is found in the first three verses of the book. And basically the theme is simply the title uh, that we will use here in our, our, our first lesson, Is Life Really Worth Living? And that is the theme of the book. Is life really worth living? And Solomon views life with all of its toils and all of its troubles, and he can't help but wonder if living is really worth it. Is it even worth going through all this mess to only end up in a grave nonetheless? So he notes how a man or a woman can spend their lives struggling to get ahead, only to die and leave all of their wealth to someone else. Someone who, as he puts it, will waste it or isn't even as worthy as they were. Now again, it must be understood that the book itself is expressing the viewpoints of a person, a man. And that's important to understand. Because the conclusions are that of a man then. And, and that's important to realize as you go through the book of Ecclesiastes that many of the outlook, many of the positions that are taken, the, the perspective is simply from a man's perspective. Now, Ecclesiastes has been abused by cults throughout history. All kinds of different religious zealots have used the book to support their devilish doctrines. And they've misrepresented the Bible, misrepresented Christ, misrepresented what God intended even from it, pulling out certain pieces and parts to complete their own position and their own perspectives to ultimately sell a faith that isn't really described in the Word of God. So we have to be careful to balance what is said in Ecclesiastes in light of the whole Bible. We can't take just one scripture and build a doctrine. We have to look at the whole. And so we want to compare scripture with scripture. But nonetheless, in Ecclesiastes, we have Solomon. And he's going to share his experience with us. And boy, he has some experience. And we're going to take a look at what he has to say along the way. And again, it cannot be forgotten either that this particular book is given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So although it is the perspective of a man as he shares what he believes or how he perceives life, we know that God intended it to be exactly what was and is in the book for our learning, for us to grow, for us to glean. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we're going to go ahead and take a look at chapter 1. And we're going to break it into basically three different pieces and just look at it for just a few moments and see what we can't learn from it. Because it's so important that we ask the same questions. The very question that Solomon himself asked, is life really worth living? And that's a good question. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask that you'd bless us now in these next few moments. Speak to our hearts as we kick off this new series. Life weighed in the balance. Father, we give to you the glory. We'll thank you for what will be accomplished. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we turn to Ecclesiastes 1 there in verses 1 through 3, we said already that the theme of the book is found right there. And that's where we're going to begin. He says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Right off the bat, we see here that... uh, uh, We have a preacher here. At least he calls him that. He calls himself the preacher. And um, this book Ecclesiastes even, just the the phrase itself, just the, 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 the book name alone tells us something. It means an assembly. 
And so what he's talking about is, in this particular case, Solomon is in essence the preacher in this assembly. And he's going to share now what he believes to be truth, what he believes to be right. In verse 2, we're going to see a word called vanity. And that's a very important word in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that word vanity means emptiness. And so when he says here, vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. I mean, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. He goes on, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is empty. All has no substance in the end. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty bleak outlook, isn't it? But according to the writer, everything is of no value. Nothing is of value. Everything is emptiness. There's no real reward for a person who toils and works in this life. And again, although that may not be a very positive outlook, that's exactly how Solomon begins to see things. He'd probably be labeled as a manic depressant in our day. Solomon would go to the doctors and he would start to share his perspective and his outlook and they'd say, boy, you need some kind of medication, buddy. You're just too depressed and too discouraged. We go on to verse 3 and it says here, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? And he's answering that question now. Is life really worth living? And from his perspective... Well, doesn't sound like it, does it? And again, that's a question that so many people are asking today. Is life really worth living? So many young people, so many middle-aged and even older adults today are asking the same question. Sadly enough, even children are beginning to ask those questions. Is life really worth living? Sadly, many conclude that life isn't worth living. And as a result, they even seek to take their own lives today. You know, according to a new report by the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, 47,000 Americans died by suicide in 2017. That's up 33% from 10.5 people per 1,000 in 1999. So we see the rate increasing. It increased even from 16 to 17. Let me give you a few other statistics. The suicide rate is at a 50-year peak according to the AP. The new data shows that there were 2,000 more deaths from suicide in 2017 than in 2016, the same year when suicide became the second leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of, get this now, 10 and 34, and the fourth leading cause for middle-aged Americans. Now, all I know is, is that that's an alarming statistic, an extremely alarming statistic. See, the conclusion that people are coming to today more and more is that life really isn't worth living. And sadly, I do not have the numbers. I chose not to share them tonight. But let me tell you something. Children are beginning to catch on, and they too are finding this is a solution to their problems. A permanent solution to a temporary problem. Not good. The increase in suicide is so significant that it it is in part responsible for another drop in life expectancy. What what, what I mean is Americans are now living on average of just over 78 years and six months on average. The average life expectancy has dropped each year since 2016. 
Because of suicide in America, our life expectancy numbers are dropping overall. It doesn't mean that you'll live less than you would have. It means that because others are taking their life so early, it's causing the mean or the average to drop. I don't know, but that's a rather significant number of people that are saying to themselves and answering the question, is life really worth living? No, a real problem for us. Now, there are a number of reasons why we're coming to that conclusion more and more. Each and every one of us could probably stand and give our opinion. But the fact is today is that I believe before it's all said and done, we'll address that issue in a very basic, fundamental way. But what we find here is in verses 1 through 3, we find this man, Solomon now, asking the question, is life really worth living? And he's going to take the book of Ecclesiastes and begin to formulate and find an opinion and begin to express his opinion and, and try to support it through his experience. We move right on along to verses 4 through 11 now. And we're going to look at a couple of things. First of all, he makes a, the general idea. He, he begins to uh, look over life a little bit and, and through his experience and his observation. And he comes to the conclusion that people come and go, but nothing really ever changes. Now, I know that we live in an information age, and I do realize and understand that, that there are some new technologies and things like that. But when it's all said and done, people are still people, every, any generation that has ever existed. And there are so many things that are really the same. Although they may be, they may be different in name, they may take a different appearance, they're really virtually the exact same things. I'm always amazed sometimes that when we look at our culture and our day, our society in which we live, we get the idea that we're so unique and so different than others in the past. Isn't it amazing to you how we've totally received and accepted this concept of evolution and we somehow think we are continually getting better and better and better than the generations before, but in reality we are only spiraling to destruction? It's an amazing thing to me. It's amazing. To convince ourselves of how high and mighty we are in America. Our children are smarter than they've ever been. No, they're not. I'm sorry, but they're not smarter than they've ever been. Do you know the difference between a child and me on a computer? They don't care if they blow the whole thing up. So they test the waters. They get in there and they do anything and everything they want. Because they know mommy, daddy, brother or sister will fix the problem. I get in there and blow it up. Somebody says, that'll be $150. And I go, forget it. I'm not touching it for the 10-foot pole. And so I never learn it. I never understand it. But it's not that they're smarter than any of us today. It's just that they're exposed to different things. And children are extremely, not only resilient, but they are. They're very, they're very capable of just soaking everything in. Think about how much a child learns from the time they're five, by the time they're five years old. But let me tell you something, you learn that way too. There's really nothing new. I mean, we are not evolving upward, my friends. We are evolving downward. How come we have such a problem in our educational system but our kids are so much smarter? What is wrong with us? We, we say one thing, but then we also statistically prove it not to be true. There's so much more involved here than just brain power. And Solomon is looking at life in general, and he's saying, and as he looks over things, as he observes the world, people come and go, he says, but nothing changes. They live, they work, they die. They live, they work, they die. They live, they work, they die. You know what? That's still the same today. Whether you're working in some 
uh, some Amazon store or, or you know, uh, working for Amazon or whether you're working for the, for the local uh, trash pickup. You live, you work, you die. <laughs> he goes on in verse, well, we see it in verse 4. One generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. So that's pretty bleak, I know. Verses 5 through 7, notice what he says. The sun also ariseth, the sun goeth down, and hasteth to this place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again, according to his circuit. And the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Into the place where whence the rivers come, thither they return again. See, even the earth itself is consistent in its cycles, he says. Again, he's observed this, he's watched it, he's seen it. The, the present hydrological uh, cycle was dramatically different before the flood. You do know that, right? The things were very different before the flood. And then after the flood, things were totally different than they were before the flood. Our present system involves global and continental air mass movement. It always happens that way. And there's an annual and seasonal temperature change. It just happens that way. It always is consistent. Oh, I know, global warming. I get it. The problem is we're only going back a hundred and some years for the numbers that we're seeking. Come on. Man, we've been around on this earth for thousands of years. When I was in school in the 1970s, I was like 25 graduating. I mean, I was only, I was only no, take that back. I was only eight years old graduating back in the 70s. But when I was in school in the 70s, you know what they told us about climate? They didn't say we were having global warming. They said we were going to enter into a ice age. That's what they kept telling us. They had us scared up. They used to say, scared the meebie-jeebies out of us. They talked about this ice age that was coming. Can I tell you that the sun keeps coming up, the sun keeps going down, that the wind keeps blowing and the wind keeps going back where it started. Can I tell you that the, the hydrological cycles of our world are still in force and they're working? And I know you can go ahead, go ahead and freak out about it all you want, lose sleep, and in 12 years we're all dead and the world's gone. But it's not going to happen, my friend, because the Bible says that's not how we're going to be destroyed. God's word is still true, my friend. I'll believe God's word over any scientist or somebody that's being paid by a certain particular group. And if that's not politically correct, you're right. It's biblically correct. Verse 8. Notice what it says in verse 8. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What he's saying is man is never really satisfied with this life in and of itself. Boy, how true is that? I remember when we were uh, just a young couple and and, uh, we were living in a two-bedroom apartment. We had our fourth child. And I still remember the... the, uh, uh, the, 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 um, uh, the supervisor there over the, the buildings, the owner actually came to me and said, you do know, as he's walking across the parking, you do know I could kick you out. And I said, what, what are you talking about? Well, you're going to have, you have four kids in a two bedroom apartment. I, but I, I could kick you out. And, 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 and he says, I do have a, a three bedroom apartments. I said, man, I would love to have a three bedroom apartment. That would be a blessing beyond blessings. I said, can I just do an even swap? And he said, well, no, of course, it's more expensive. I said, well, I can't afford anything more. Oh, you young people are all alike. <laughs> you don't even know how to live your body. I said, well, please come up and show me, sensei. 
and he sat on my porch, and for the next 20 minutes, he asked me the same questions over and over again. How much do you make? No, what's your gross? Do you have any other income? Does your wife work? What's her income? And to every question, it was always the same answer. And he kept saying, but that doesn't make sense. There's no way you could pay your rent even now based on what you're telling me you make. I said, I know. There is no way I can even justify it. There's no way that it could possibly happen. It is supernatural. You must agree with that because it's only God that's doing it. And he said, I can't help you. He threw his hands in the air and he walked right down the steps. And, he, and I said, are you kicking us out? And he just went, I can't help you. And he never did kick us out, but God opened up the door for us to go into a wonderful home. Boy, I'll tell you what, we ended up renting it for the exact same price as we were renting our, our, our two-bedroom apartment. And we moved on in and we started renting that house. And man, what a blessing that was to be in a home. I can tell you, when we first moved, it was amazing. Here we are in a two-bedroom apartment with four children. And let me tell you, you don't have a lot of room for clutter in a, a two-bedroom apartment with four kids. And so you're really careful what you put and what you don't put in there. And let me tell you, when we moved to a, a three-bedroom a three-bedroom house with a full basement. We thought it, I mean, we thought we landed in the Taj Mahal. And I mean to tell you, at least for a year and a half, it was wonderful. Until all of a sudden, we noticed things filling up around us. You ever been there? I mean, you think you've got all this room, and all of a sudden, it's like, where'd that come? Man, this room's getting full. I mean, it was like, man, there's nothing in there. This is awesome. Well, let's set that in there for now. And before you know it, Kids are growing up, they're moving into rooms, more junk, more this. Man, Christmases and birthdays and everything else that come along with it. The, the house is filling up and you go, man, this house used to be really something. We're tight as anything in here. You know what the problem is if we're not careful? We're never satisfied. We can get to the place where we say it's never enough. Now, I want you to know we've raised our children through that home and God had blessed us in that home and we don't regret being in that home. It's a blessing. But let me tell you something. The truth is, it would have been easy to say, we need something bigger and better. Isn't that the American way? Now, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a desire or, uh, you know, we shouldn't have any ambition to better ourselves and to provide ourselves nicer things. If you can afford it, then by all means have it, as long as you're not, uh, you know, kicking God by the curb, of course. But the truth is, is that there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? Man is never really satisfied with this life in and of itself. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Not that I speak in respect of one, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, I had to learn to be content. Do you know nobody just becomes content? They learn a, a, the element of contentment. But, by the way, parents, you have an obligation and responsibility to teach your children how to be content. You know, one of the greatest things we do, uh, one of the greatest injustices we do to our kids is let them believe somehow that everybody's supposed to cater to them, that the world's supposed to revolve around them, that they should never be content. If they're not, just go ahead and scream out, yell out, we'll go ahead and we'll fix it for you. No, children need to learn to be content where they are. And you don't have to buy something new every other week. You don't have to give them something new to play with. You don't have to try to coax them into to being happy all the time. Boy, we've taught and trained a whole generation not to be content. And boy, we're paying a price. You know one of the results of discontentment is? That life isn't worth living. So I might as well rid myself of it. Be gone. We're creating the very problem that we're trying to fix. Over in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. Turn there if you would. 
What a powerful statement we're going to read. An amazing passage. Proverbs 27, 20. If I can't say it, I mean, I don't think it could be said any more plainly than this. He goes on to say that the the writer of Proverbs, and, and does anybody know who wrote the book of Proverbs or who was? Yeah. The same guy that put his pen, the pen to the paper for, uh, for, for, for this particular book, Ecclesiastes, was also one that wrote here in the book of Proverbs. Notice what he says. Hell and destruction are never full. So the eyes of man are never satisfied. Isn't that a funny thing? You, you know, you think, well, if I only got that, I'd be happy. And you get that, and you're not happy. Isn't it a sad thing to watch couples long for someone else? God gave them the one they're with, but they're not satisfied with that one. They want something or someone else. That's a pitiful thing. But that is the nature of mankind. That's the nature of women and men both. We all, if we're not careful, if we allow the flesh to rule us, we will never be satisfied at all. If we don't learn to be content, then we will always be looking for something better. And I learned a long time ago that the grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. Then in verse 9, it says, the thing, which, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Again, he comes to this conclusion as he views life, as he looks over his life even. He says, you know, there's nothing new here. People are still the same now as they've ever been. Whether it's Noah's day or whether it was back in Jesus' day or in Paul's day, people are people are people. No new teachings, really. No new attitudes. No new iniquities. We just keep refining iniquity. We keep making sin a little bit more accessible. But sin is still just sin. It's an offense to God. All is the same. There's no new thing under the sun, he says. No new thing under the sun. You know what? That's a, that is a, a, a real principle that we ought to really grasp. There's nothing new under the sun. See, what was will be. What will be, what it, what, excuse me, what was is and what is will be. And that is something we need to keep in mind. That's why I'll encourage every, every young couple here, please, have children, enjoy your life. Don't come to the place where you say stupid things. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Where you say things like, because somebody probably said it that you trust and maybe they're sitting in here, but <laughs> do not say to yourself, I guess, let me just say it that way. I would not raise kids. I would not bring a child into this world. Don't say that. Why? Let me tell you, you know how messed up the world is now? Go back in Jesus' day and see how crazy it was. I mean, honestly, go live back there when the the Jews were running for their very lives from both the the Judaizers and also from the Roman government. Go ahead and move there. What if they wouldn't have had children? Man, listen, one of the greatest joys in life is to live your life with someone and share your life with someone. And if God blesses you with children, have them. Don't look at life the way Solomon does to some degree. Well, I'll tell you what, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't be intimidated by the world we live in. 
Just raise your children to live for Jesus Christ. Go ahead and enjoy the, the years God's given you. If he blesses you with kids, then enjoy them. And if he doesn't, maybe you ought to consider maybe grabbing a few that don't have a mom and daddy. Verses 12 through 18. We come to the end of the chapter and again, Solomon's ex- expressing his frustration concerning life here. And um, he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under the heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's all emptiness. It's all futile. I mean, this is Solomon. He has, he's had it all. And he has done it all. He has lived the dream. And yet he's still found wanting. He has had everything that any man in the world could ever dream of wanting. Look if you would in 1 Kings chapter 10, please. 1 Kings chapter 10. I think it's interesting to note that more men take their lives than women. I think it's interesting. I don't want to go into why I think that is, but let's just notice what it says here in chapter 10 of 1 Kings. Look at verses 2 through 5. Well, let's just read through verse 1 to start with. It says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. Now, let me, I'm just going to throw this in. This is not part of the message, but I think it's important to realize this. I, I do believe that for young people today, they have a lot of questions. I think it is a tragedy and travesty that when a young person comes to a parent asking questions about life or the Word of God, we go, and we wonder why they do not adopt our faith. We don't have any answers for them. I'm going to tell you what, your young people need to be encouraged to ask questions, and then they need to be encouraged to study out some of the questions they're asking you. Sometimes you don't need to necessarily give them the whole answer. Sometimes you need to get them started and allow them to find them in the Word of God themselves. But let me tell you something, there are some tough questions that need to be asked, and unfortunately, many times it's teenagers and young adults that are asking those questions. We need to be be able to go to them with answers from the Word of God. We are losing a generation of children. We have already lost one. We're going to lose another one because in my opinion, many times they have not either one, seen it lived out, real faith lived out, or number two, they've not received the answers necessary to help inspire faith. I'm not saying that's the only reason why children go the wrong direction. I'm just saying it plays a part and we need to deal with that. In this case, the Queen of Sheba comes from another country, asks some tough questions. 
asking the toughest question she can. And the Bible tells us that this King Solomon, being wise as he was, answered all her questions. Now, I don't know if she got the answers she wanted or were looking for, but she got the answers. Notice it goes on. That's just a side note. Verse 3, and Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had sent, wouldn't it be something? It's almost as if he knew the questions too, right? He was a parent. We ought to probably know some of the questions because we've had those questions. You get what I'm saying? I'm just throwing that out. I'm spiffballing here. Notice verse 4. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat on his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Man. You know what? The queen of Sheba was speechless as she viewed him, his court, and his kingdom. She was in awe of what she saw. And even when we look in verse 14, it goes on to say that now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 600, three score, and six talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. That translates to almost 80,000 pounds of gold a year. I mean, this is King Solomon that's writing Ecclesiastes. He has lived the dream. Look at verse 21 now. Notice this. He goes on to say, And all the king, and all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Eh, get rid of that measly stuff. It's not worth a dime to me. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. I mean, this guy had it all. You talk about riches. He, did, he drank out of golden goblets. Hey, uh, Solomon, I just designed a beautiful silver goblet. Away with him. Head off. Well, take his head off. How dare you even come to me with that? I don't know. I'm just saying it's crazy, though, isn't it? To think that this is the kind of rich, how rich this man was, how much he had. He drank out of gold cups. He didn't even count the silver, it says. In verse 27, it says, And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. Look at verses 23 through 25. It says, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses and mules, a rate year by year. Basically, he had a tax. They had to bring so much in. And here they're bringing all of these gifts and all of this taxation. He's raking it in. Him and his nation. Unbelievable wealth. King Solomon. He has, he has it all. And he has done it all. But hold on. Let's go at 1 Kings 11 verse 3. The Bible says, And he had 700 wives. Big mistake. And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Now listen. 
He had everything and anything a man could ever, ever, ever desire. Anything. Riches untold. Any companionship he chose. Anything he wanted. He says, it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. You always come up empty and wanting, he says. Life itself or the things of life will never, ever, truly and permanently satisfy a person. Doesn't happen. Doesn't work that way. We live our lives trying to better ourselves and trying to attain to certain goals and levels. If I could only get a better job, if I could only make more money, if I could only get a bigger house, if I could only have a nicer car, if I could only have a better wife, if I could only have a better husband, if I could only get this, 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 and this, man, I would be set. We get there and we say, I'm not content. I still need a little more. I need a little more. I need a little more. And we keep trying to strive to get to the pinnacle where ultimately we are satisfied, not just from the things that we have exteriorly, but internally we're satisfied. And we never arrive there. He says, you never get there. You always want something else. No matter what you obtain to, it'll never be enough. You've ever wondered about these sports guys, these, these athletes? You've heard about some of them through the years. When they got to a certain place, they were willing to take a cut in pay in order to have other better players so that they could have championship teams. Less and less are doing that now. You want to know why? It has nothing to do with team. has nothing to do with anyone but me. Let me tell you something, that is really what we're turning into in our culture and our society. And don't think for a minute that that attitude is not prevailing in the house of God tonight. It's happening across the board. We are being influenced by our culture, even as believers. We have to be so careful that we continue to keep our nose to the grindstone, that we continue to look into the the law of love, that we keep our minds set on the things of, of, of heaven and not the things of earth. Listen, nothing wrong again with trying to get what you you're striving for, get a good job, a great education, do all of those things. Yes. But when you start to believe somehow that those things in and of themselves will bring you joy, peace, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, my friend, you are dearly wrong. It's all vanity, he says. So what lessons are we to learn? Well, I think we've touched on it already, but there are obviously a number of lessons we could learn from this particular passage, from this book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1 even. But for our purpose, I want to just mention one, just one, and we're not, literally, look at this. I mean, we're talking, I mean, you know what I mean? There's not that much there, so don't get nervous. It's not like I've gone, you know, that was all introduction. Uh, no, that's, that wasn't all introduction. No. No, not at all. So what are we to learn? Here's what I believe we should learn from chapter 1. And again, we can learn a number of things, but I believe for our purpose tonight, here's what we need to learn. When a person seeks to find meaning in life, without God, there is only sorrow. That's what I believe we learn from from chapter 1. Remember, we're listening to a man. We're, being, we're hearing his perspective. And from his perspective, a man that has in, enjoyed everything that the world has to offer, he says it's still vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He finds himself empty in his pursuits. He finds himself empty in his pleasures. He finds himself empty in his prosperity. 
He has come to the place, no matter what he has obtained, it's never enough and it doesn't truly satisfy. And we learn that when a person seeks to find meaning in life without God, there is only sorrow. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Is life really worth living? Well, that's a great question. And may I say this? If you don't include God, if you don't allow God to be in your life, to be as he wants to be in your life, then you're going to find it very hard to say yes. Oh, I know we can cover up some of the insecurities and we can cover up some of the the, the missing parts and pieces. As we mentioned this morning, there's an element of that we are incomplete. We are only bipartite versus tripartite. We're actually still tripartite, but we have a dead spirit. And let me tell you, we're not complete without Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And once we receive him, then we need to allow him to be preeminent in our life. Otherwise, we'll look at life the way Solomon's looking at it. Because in all of our physical pursuits, we will still come up empty. Notice what he says in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above. Now again, someone says, well, what do you mean risen with Christ? Well, the Bible tells us over in the book of Romans, and I'm just going to read it very quickly, and I'm sure I have it memorized once I get started here, but it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What it's talking about is we died with him that day. We are resurrected with him. Now that we died with him and we rose again, we were an old creature. Now we're a new creature in Christ. And we ought to be walking in a direction and a way that is Christ-like. We have a new life now. Now he's saying here in the passage, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And he says, seek now set your affection on things above, not, thing, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now again, there's, there's two verses that stand out here out of the four. I want you to see verse 2 and verse 4 more than any other. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That again is an eternal outlook. We've got to be careful that we don't get short-sighted nearsighted, that all we can see is what's before us and what's right in front of us. And that would be this life. That would be these days where we live. I mean, sometimes with our young people, if we're not careful, all they can see is, I need a husband. I need a wife. I need a husband. I need a wife. I need a husband. I need a wife. And they go ahead and throw their standards out the window and they take the first one that comes along because they finally feel like someone loves them. And then six months later, They're complaining and whining about the fact that this person isn't who they thought they were when they married him. Let me tell you something. That's short-sightedness. That's getting your eyes off of heaven and getting them on earth and yourself. I want to prepare you young people for, for life in the future. And one of the things you cannot afford to do is stop looking to the sky. You stop looking to the future and thinking about what's going to happen not just a day from now, a week from now, but a year from now, and five years from now, and 10 years, and 20, and 30 years from now. When you fail to see the future and you fail to look at things from God's perspective, my friend, you are headed to a real mess on earth. 
but she's so pretty and she's so nice and she goes to church. As we used to say, big whoop. Who cares? Wow, that's, the, that's it right there. Boy, she looks so nice and she acts so nice at church. Duh. It's what they all do. And you do too. It isn't what you do while you're here. It's what you do when you're not here that matters. And you got to dig a little deeper than that. But in our own lives, we're looking to some situations and circumstances and we look at life the same way. So short-sighted. If I can only get this now, I have to have that new car. I have to have that new house. I've got to have that new relationship. I need to have this and I need to have that. I won't be happy unless God gives me a kid. I won't be happy if God doesn't do this. I won't be happy if God doesn't give me that or do this. My friend, you are so nearsighted. You've lost sight of what God's all about. You've lost sight of what you're about. You're going to be miserable. You might as well plan on it. You're going to be miserable, miserable, miserable. You've got to set your affections on things above, not things on the earth. And look at this. This is, the pro- this is what we want to really fall to. I'm telling you, this is the secret. People will stop killing themselves if they can adopt this philosophy right here in verse 4. They'll stop cutting themselves. They'll stop mutilating their bodies. They'll stop all kind of problems that are taking place now in our culture and our world because we have totally and completely disavowed God and dismissed God in our culture, our world, and in our lives, families, and homes. And watch what he says here. Here's the solution to every problem in the, in the world. I promise you, I know you say, well, that's just too simple. You're just going to tell us to love God and pray. No, I'm not going to tell you that. But I will tell you this. This is the first thing that has to happen in a Christian's life. If you truly want to be satisfied and have fulfillment in your life. Otherwise, my friend, you might as well be as dead to God as the world is. You're not going to experience the joy of the Lord in your life because this is not taking place. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm telling you, you are missing out on the best part of being saved. Notice what he says here. When Christ, who is our life. Here's the biggest misconception in a believer's life today. That Christ can be a part of my life. I think, that there, I think one of the young men mentioned it. I, I, I think, brother, you, you talked about it. You had something up here, you know, and, and I just kind of drew from this. But, you know, and I'd already, I, I've been thinking about this. And when you did this, I was telling the, the staff back there, the messages were, were, were good messages and stuff. I said, but your little illustration brought me back to the thought right here. And, and we take Christ and we throw him in. We include him in our life. We carry him with us where we go. He's not our life. He's a part of our life. And because of that, we still allow our personal desire, our own goals, our own longings, our own, our own uh, you know, out, everything about the future. We have our own idea where we want to be and how we want to get there. And we wonder why we're always coming up empty. It's because he's not our life. See, to be our, my life, he's everything. He's everything. I don't exist without him. I don't breathe without him. I don't walk without him. I don't talk without him. I don't have a wife and family and I don't have any ministry without him. He's everything, right? That's what he's saying here in the passage. That's how all of us ought to think. That's how we ought to be. But let me tell you, including myself, the easiest thing to do is to take Christ with me along the way. Hey, you want to come along? Come on, I got some plans. Come on, join me. 
He's not our lives so many times. He's a piece or a part. And we feel so good about ourselves because we include him. And we say, see, I include Jesus in my life. I've got a place for him in my, my, my time schedule. I, have, I meet with him daily and I go to church on a regular basis. Therefore, I'm spiritual. I got it all figured out. And yet you may not have him as your life at all. He's a piece and a part. Yeah, I go to my wife and I say, you know what, honey? I just want you to know I love you so much. You're just one of the girls in my life. Just one of the girls. You know, actually, you're my favorite. Can you imagine Solomon trying to deal with all that mess? I mean, seriously, what a mess, right? God warned the kings and he warned others, do not multiply wives. Why? Because all that does is create a lot of problems. Oh, honey, I, I love you. You're awesome. You are the best this week. I don't, I don't think that would go over too well. You know what? We treat God that way sometimes, don't we? This week, I'm pretty on. But I got some things I have to do. There's some, some things I feel I have a right to say. There's some attitudes I think I have a right to hold on to. Because he's only a piece or a part. And we're wondering why there's no satisfaction. Why there's emptiness. Why it seems that the Christian life's not paying off like we thought it would. The reward's not what I thought it was. I'm not seeing the results from it that I thought I would see. Because he's not our life. He's only a piece or a part maybe. Life has limited meaning without Jesus Christ. And that is a reality. So the key is Christ in our life. If you really want meaning in your life, if you want to be able to answer in the affirmative, is life worth living? And mean it and say, without a doubt, it's worth it. You need to put Christ where he belongs. Center stage. On the throne of your life. Let him be your life. Let him govern every thought and let him govern every decision. Let him govern every attitude and every outlook. Let him govern where you go and what you do. Let him govern whether or not you have this or you have that. Allow him to be your life. Not just a piece or a part when it's casual, casually convenient. When it fits into your schedule. Obviously it's time to go. I just heard the bell ring. What you do with Jesus Christ will ultimately determine everything else. It'll determine how you view life itself, how you live life, and how you depart from this life. Again, what you do with Jesus Christ will ultimately determine everything else. How you view life, how you live life, and how you depart from this life. Solomon the preacher in this assembly. He shares with us from the perspective of a man, his experience, his outlook. And it's pretty bleak. But it needn't be bleak as long as we incorporate, not just conclude, but allow Christ to be our life. That changes the game completely.